Let's pray. Father, we want to remember at the beginning that this is about you. This is not about us. You are the one who in the beginning made us male and female. And this is about your beautiful design and creation and intention. And so though we may think about ourselves and what this means for us, Lord, we want to we want to fix our eyes on you and we want to ask that you would give each one of us a humble and a submissive heart to receive your word with joy and with obedience that we would taste your goodness and your glory in the things that you have made here this morning as we look at men and women and your beautiful design for us. Show us yourself, O oh Lord. Open up our hearts wide to what your word says and what it means. And may we reflect your glory in a more clear and more beautiful way because of this encounter with your word. Help us to understand. Help us to believe. Help us to obey. And I ask this, Jesus, for your sake and in your name. Amen. Please have a seat. very small housekeeping note I want to draw your attention to is we uh, purchased and hooked up a couple of speakers out in the foyer. So those of you who um, need to take a little one out and walk around out there are now not going to miss out on the service. So enjoy that. So we come to this passage this morning and I could make this a really, really quick sermon by just saying, this passage means exactly what it says. Let's pray. Now, I hope you know I'm, I'm joking, but I, I hope you know we're also pointing to something really important there. This is one of those passages that makes modern people feel uncomfortable. I wonder, did you feel uncomfortable just reading it together a, a moment or two ago? This passage, passages like this, tend to make us uncomfortable because of how different what it says is from the world around us, what they accept and believe. What this passage teaches us is so different from what's acceptable and, and when, when we encounter these teachings in God's word that are just so different from what our, our culture accepts and believes, it's very easy for us to, to kind of knee-jerk, react, and, and say, well, does it really mean that anymore? Does, does it really, do, do we, is that really for us? Maybe that was just for them. There's ways that we, we engage to try to get around the strangeness of the Bible's teaching. Well, let's just ask this question. Based on everything we've seen so far in our series in 1 Peter, should we be surprised when the teachings of the Lord seem strange to the world around us? Of course not. Like, the opposite. We should expect it. Haven't we been seeing from the very beginning of 1 Peter that we're exiles, strangers, foreigners in this world? Our faith in Jesus makes us stick out as much as if we came from another country. Remember Damien's example of the snowsuits in September? That's what our faith in Jesus does. And so we should not be surprised 
when we get to a passage like this, particularly knowing that we live in a world that's drowning in feminism and gender confusion, we should not be surprised that believing and obeying today's passage is about as strange as you can get in today's world. It's about as weird as you can get. And that's normal. That's expected because as followers of Jesus, we are strangers in this world. And a passage like this is one of the places that we get to actually put that into practice. At the same time, let's flip the script and recognize what this passage teaches is not strange. Our world is what's strange. Our world is in exile to the Lord. And what makes us seem like exiles is that we've come home and, they, and the rest of the world hasn't. This is God's design, God's beautiful design. He made us, he designed us a certain way. This is what he wants. You know, you read like the owner's manual for a car and this is what it's supposed to do. And it's like our world has decided to flip the cars on their, on their heads and push them along this pavement or something like that. And, and some people actually turn them around and drive them and everyone goes, that's so weird. That's actually what it's designed to do and how it's designed to work. We should not be embarrassed. Our modern world and all of their foolish rejection of God's truth, they should be embarrassed. What this passage is saying is good. It's good. It's good for you to do this. Wives, it's good for you to heed the word and obey this passage. Husbands, it is good for you to hear this passage and heed it and obey it. And, 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 when, and those who are not married of any age, it's good for you to learn from this passage what it says to all men and women. Hear, oh, just feel your creator's love for you in not leaving you to figure out on your own how you're supposed to be as a man or a woman, but feel your creator's love in telling you and showing you, giving you so many examples. So we want to enjoy God's word to us in this passage over the next couple of weeks. Yes, I said couple of weeks because it's going to take us a couple of weeks. We're going to spend most of this morning's sermon just walking through the passage, looking at what it says, how Peter says it, and just soaking it in. But as we know, that's not, that's not where, we're, where we're done because what we need to then do is unpack the implications of the passage for us. What does this mean for us? What does this passage mean for children? What does this passage mean for people in all different stages of life? Asking questions about the passage, like how does it apply in this situation? What about that situation? Is all of that, and that's an important part of, of preaching the word, right? Second Timothy 2.4 suggests that, that that's what we need to do. We need to then take, take the word and not just understand it, but understand how it applies to our lives. But there's so many issues here. This week, we're going to do it over, over a couple of weeks. We're going to take today to, to walk through the passage and just soak it in. And then next week, we're going to uh, take as much time as we need to, to really understand all the implications of this passage as we ask lots of questions of it. But today, we, we start with the really important step. So, Notice this passage contains instruction to wives for six verses and husbands for one verse. It begins with wives, and it begins with the word likewise. 
Likewise, wives. Well, what's that word likewise pointing to? In the section that we were just in, is talking about slaves submitting to their masters. And so if we read this in, a, in not a very careful way, we might assume that he's saying, just as slaves submit to their masters, so wives submit to your husbands. That would not be a correct way of reading this word because that's not how Peter uses the word likewise. If you look at verse 7, he says, likewise, husbands... Live with your wives. So he doesn't talk about submission at all. And yet he uses the word likewise. We see the same thing in, in chapter 5 when he talks about elders and then those under the elders, he uses the word likewise. So here, here's, here's the point. Likewise is not just pointing at the submission piece. He's not saying do the same thing for the same reasons. So what is he saying? What's, what's the, what, why does he use the word likewise? What is, what is likewise about what slaves and masters do and what wives and their husbands do? Why would he even put those together? Well, and even if we, if, let's go back a step, before slaves and masters, it was citizens in the government, right? That, that, was, that was where this, this kind of whole section started. Well, let's remember the pattern here. Going back to citizens in the government, we can remember Peter's telling Christians that even though they now follow Jesus. Jesus is their real king. They are citizens of his holy nation. Remember we talked about that? These aren't just empty religious words. This is true. This is your citizenship. Way more real and more important than being a citizen of Canada as you're a part of the one people of God that he's brought together. So even though that's true, and even though we're not going to do a lot of the things that the world expects us to do, there are certain things that the world expects us to do that we should keep doing, such as submitting to the government and for slaves submitting to their masters. But our new identity in Christ means that we do these things for completely different reasons than we used to. Right? So before, you submitted to Caesar because he said he was the son of God and he had absolute power. Now we submit because Jesus said to. And we see how the, the reasons Peter gives actually are, are quite a challenge to the way that the Roman world thought. He says, yes, yeah, submit to Caesar or submit to whatever government authorities who God created because God said so. And, and in a similar way, slaves are told to submit to their masters, not for the reasons that Rome believed. See, Rome believed some people were born to rule, some people were born to be slaves, some people are more superior, some people are less superior. If you're a slave, that's your lot in life. You're good for nothing more than just to be ruled over. Deal with it. And Peter rejects that completely, which is what Jordan was pointing to, that, that as Peter tells slaves to submit to their masters, he's actually planting the seeds that will cause slavery to crumble. Because he says, no, 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 slaves, as you submit to your masters, you are following in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's, he elevates slaves to this incredible spot and says, suffer for doing good like the king of the universe did. So you see how he's telling us, yes, follow the old rules, but for completely different reasons. Do what's expected of you in these areas, but not for the reasons that they're giving you. He's challenging the belief system of the Roman world, even as he encourages us in certain respects to, to do the things that would have been expected of us. So, so we come to this command to wives to submit to their husbands. This was not a strange command. 
This is what was expected of wives in the Roman world. This is not countercultural the way it is in our culture. Like, preaching this sermon would get things thrown at me in many settings. Okay? That was not the way it was in the Roman world. Of course, this is what should happen. Because in the Roman world, husbands had complete control over their wives. In fact, for a wife to have a different religion than her husband was a big no-no. For a wife to have different friends from her husband was a big no-no. For her to do anything different from her husband was unacceptable. So one writer, Plutarch, who lived right around the time of Peter, he put it this way. This is a kind of common thought here. A wife should not acquire her own friends, but should make her husband's friends her own. The gods are the first and most significant friends. For this reason, it is proper for a wife to recognize only those gods whom her husband worships and to shut the door to superstitious cults and strange superstitions. That was common teaching. There's, there's lots of gods back then. Who does your husband worship? Those are your gods. So for a wife to become a Christian when her husband is not, which is specifically what Peter's addressing here, that would have been a scandal, a big scandal. I mean, so here's how Karen Jobes, a scholar, puts it. She says, the husband in society would perceive the wife's worship of Jesus Christ as rebellion. And she goes on to say, if the wife persisted in her new religion to the extent that others outside the household learned of it. So in other words, people are like, your wife, she worships Jesus. Okay, so if that starts happening, the husband would also feel embarrassment and suffer criticism for not properly managing his household. This could seriously damage his social standing, even to the point of disqualifying him for certain honors and offices. That's John. His wife's a Christian. Don't, don't invite him to this. Right? Like, so so, so the, this wife who hears the gospel, believes in it, and her husband doesn't, has thrown her household into scandal, and Roman wisdom says, get in line, worship your husband's gods. Don't go to church. Don't make Christian friends. Don't, don't do what Peter's been telling her to do, which is understand her Christian identity is her main identity. Don't do any of that. Just get in line. So do you see... That by Peter affirming a, a, a wife in this spot, affirming her, the, the rightness and appropriateness of her following the Lord Jesus Christ is directly challenging the assumptions of the Roman world. He's challenging the idea that a husband has total control over his wife. He's challenging that idea. He's affirming that a Christian wife is first and foremost under the authority, not of her husband, but of the Lord Jesus Christ. She is not bound to follow her husband's gods. Jesus is the real king. Jesus is the real authority. So don't miss that. Don't miss that Peter's words here is a shot across the bows, which means it's a, it's a declaration of war against the common ways that people thought And yet, he says, submit to your husband. Why? Why should a a woman who has come under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ is a part of, of the holy nation that God is creating and calling together 
her brothers and sisters in Christ, that's now her, her main family. Why should she still submit to a man who goes to burn incense to the Roman gods once a week and, you know, has nothing to do with, with any of that? Well, here's the answer halfway through verse 1. So that, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that, even if some do not obey the word, so, so there we kind of see a bit of his focus here on those who do not know the Lord, those who do not obey the word. Notice again, Christians are obeyers. Christians obey the word. Even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see, when your husbands see, your respectful and pure conduct. Wives are to submit to their husband because their respectful and pure and submissive way of life might be the thing that the Lord uses to win or gain their husband's soul. So don't miss what's going on here. The culture expected her to worship her husband's gods. Peter says, no, no, you've got a mission here, which is to win your husband to Jesus. Don't miss how radical that is. And she does that by being submissive and living, conducting herself in a respectful and a pure way. Now, this word respectful, this is, I don't think this is the best translation. This is just the word fear. I know why they translate it respectful, because it sounds like he's telling women to live in fear of their husbands. And that doesn't sound really healthy. But let's remember where else in the book of Peter have we seen the idea of fear and the idea of conduct together? 1 Peter 1.17 And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And we saw there this idea of living in the fear of the Lord. And so it's it's, it's much better to understand that's what Peter's saying here. He's not, I mean, so is it a good idea for a wife to respect her husband? Yes, that's not, that's not what he's saying here, though. As you live in the fear of the Lord, as your conduct is pure because you're living to honor your heavenly father, is he, and as your husband sees that, that's going to have an impact on him. It's hard to miss that Peter's emphasis here is on the wives' actions. Now, of course, words would need to be spoken because how else does he know that she's a Christian? How else does he know she follows Jesus? There's going to be some words in here. You, you cannot have any sense of Christianity without words. So preach the gospel to all people if necessary. Use words. That's nonsense. The gospel is words. I mean, it's a message you need words to communicate that. Nevertheless, nevertheless, Peter encourages these wives not to try to convert their husbands with many words, but rather without a word to conduct themselves with submission and purity in the fear of the Lord. And that may be the thing that the Lord who saves us the Lord who is sovereign over salvation that the Lord might use to soften their husbands' hearts and win them over to faith in the Lord Jesus. 
So likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. That's Peter's first instruction to wives. To submit. Now in verse 3, Peter moves from talking about how wives are to submit to their husbands into a discussion about how women are to adorn themselves. Verse 3. Do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. This might seem like a rapid change in subject. Like, why are you talking about this all of a sudden, Peter? But we know it's not because of what the very next verse says, verse 5. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. So we see it comes around full circle. Peter has not changed the subject. Here's what's happened here in verse 3. Peter's moved down a level. He's talking now about the fundamental heart attitude that makes submission possible in the first place. Where does submission come from? Is submission just gritting your teeth and saying, fine, or is there something deeper? And that's this deeper thing that Peter's pointing to here. A wife submitting to her husband is just one example of a gentle and a quiet spirit, which a woman should be seeking to adorn herself with, which means that a wife submitting to her husband is not just about playing a game in order to try and get him into the kingdom of God. Okay, fine, I'll submit if that's what gets you to be saved. No, no, more fundamentally, listen to what Peter's saying. It is appropriate for a wife to submit to her husband because submission is an expression of genuine feminine beauty, which is precious in God's eyes. So we're already answering here one of the questions we're going to ask next week. Is this for us today? Is this for us? Is this for a woman even if her husband is a believer? The answer is yes, because Peter's showing here that submission is simply one example one expression of, of the feminine beauty that is precious in God's eyes. But we're getting ahead of ourselves here. We don't want to get ahead of ourselves. We want to follow along with, with what Peter says. So let's notice what he says, first of all, in verse 3, when he talks about this adorning. Do not let your adorning be external. And then he gives three examples. The braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. Yikes, Peter. Don't you know, Peter, that it's inappropriate for a man to give instructions on these things to women? Men aren't allowed to have opinions on women's issues, Peter, let alone express those opinions. Peter, you're just mansplaining here. Peter, isn't it sexist to assume that your female readers are even interested in clothing and hair and jewelry in the first place? Not every woman cares about those things. Come on, Peter. That's, that's how a lot of people think today. Okay? I, I don't. I just, just, you know, I was someone else that I was impersonating there, the cultural voice. I hope that we don't buy into that wisdom of the world. I hope we can see clearly through the fog and understand that what Peter says here is 
just addressing and assuming some very basic and very normal realities. Peter is assuming that God has made men and women different. God has made women beautiful. And that's nothing to hide from or be ashamed of. It's something the Bible just acknowledges and celebrates. Physical beauty is God's idea. And it's nothing that is uh, it's something that it, it is nothing that we should be ashamed of or embarrassed of or try to hide or try to cover up. Peter also assumes that it is a normal thing in general, of course there's exceptions, but it's a normal thing in general for a woman to seek to underscore or highlight her natural beauty through adornment. That's just what he assumes. He says, don't let your adorning be external. He just assumes that's a normal thing to want to do. Which again, we see examples of that in the Bible and it's, 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 a, it's a normal thing. But Peter also understands that a focus on external beauty can distract a woman and those around her from what should be the real source of her beauty. And particularly in Peter's day, Peter's addressing an issue in his day, which was women dressing and adorning themselves not just to turn heads at their physical beauty, but to flaunt their wealth. And you can't, kind of can't separate the issues. The, the wealth and the, and, and the beauty kind of went together. But in Peter's day in particular, it wasn't just, look how beautiful I am. It was also very much, look at how wealthy and successful I am. And, and we know that because of the phrases that Peter use here, uses here. When he talks about the braiding of hair, Peter is not saying that there's something inherently sinful about taking your hair, separating it into three sections, and weaving it together to keep it out of your face. That's not what he's saying. We know from, from history, from archaeology, we've got a lot of archaeological evidence from this time in history, that elaborate hair arrangements made of all kinds of braids that were put together in these elaborate structures was a fashion trend that was happening from these, or that was stemming from these wealthy influencers in Rome who would every few years come up with these elaborate hairstyles, which would then be copied by women throughout the empire. Kind of like Instagram on dial-up internet. You know, it's like really, really slow. But basically, it's that you got the whole influencer culture. It was going on then. And here's what's, here's what's, what's, what's really important about this. There was only a specific type of, of woman who could do this kind of thing with her hair. Only a very wealthy woman could afford to have slaves who did all of the household work so that she could, or actually more likely, so that she could also have other slaves who would do her hair for her. Because we need to understand about the ancient world. A woman who was not wealthy did not have the luxury of putting her, putting her hair up in fancy hairstyles. Think of, just, just ladies here, think of a world without electricity, indoor plumbing. I mean, just keeping a household going was a lot of work all the time. If I can just kind of off the cuff talk to you as a brother here for a moment, you know those days when you just do something quick with your hair because you have too much going on? Imagine that, but someone has taken away your fridge and your microwave and your laundry machine. And 
even more, has made it hard, okay? And that, that was normal life, really, really hard. And so when a woman in that era walked around with fancy braided hair, she's making a statement at her wealth that she has so much money that she could pay other people to do all that stuff for her and to do this for her. It was a status symbol. It was a wealth symbol. So the equivalent today is, is, is this is a little bit dangerous to try to, to do a one-to-one equivalent, but when Peter talks about braided hair, don't think just a simple hairstyle. Think something pretty elaborate that flaunts your wealth. And, of course, is also about, hey, look at me. It's showing off. Okay? A, a comparison today might be something like plastic surgery, which is surprisingly common. Girls in their 20s spending thousands of dollars to make their faces look the way they look on the filter on their phone. And it's not just about the beauty. It's about having the disposable income to be able to do that. When someone goes and gets all, these, all this surgery, they're making a statement, I can do this. I can, I can afford this. And it's a status symbol. And Peter says, don't let your adorning be that kind of thing. He also goes on to talk about the putting on of gold jewelry. So again, we've got to understand, in the ancient world, gold was money. One gold coin was worth 25 silver coins and a silver coin is what a laborer got for for a day's worth of of work so a one gold coin was about what a construction worker would make in a, almost a month so when you put on gold jewelry you're literally wearing money you've got so much money that you're putting it on your body it was it was again a, a statement of wealth poorer people would wear jewelry but it would often be made of brass or or, or something or bronze uh, it's something of a lesser value. Gold jewelry was a wealth symbol. Yes, it was to get, it was to turn heads, but not just at your beauty, also at your wealth. And then finally, Peter mentions the clothing you wear. He doesn't mention what kind of clothing, but in the context, it's 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 kind of obvious to see that he's talking about clothing that would turn heads, attract attention, because very likely it's lavish and expensive. And Peter. As an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ tells his women readers that their adornment should not be in these outward external forms, hair, jewelry, clothing. That should not be the main way that they seek to make themselves beautiful. Now notice what Peter does next, or rather what he does not do next. He does not tell his women readers, instead of gold, jewelry, all that kind of stuff, you should dress in a plain and simple way with boring colors. And he doesn't give a dress code, in other, in other words. I'm sure that some of you are familiar with Christian groups throughout history that have had dress codes for everybody. I mean, maybe there's certain, like we've got dress codes for our worship teams and there's, there's good reasons for that. But I mean, Christian groups where that's one of the things they say, okay, if you're a woman, this is how you have to dress. Peter does not do that. Here's part of the reason. Uh, it doesn't work. Doesn't, doesn't address the real thing, which he's going to get to in a moment, which is the heart. But, but more than that, when someone dresses in an intentionally plain way, 
they often end up attracting just as much attention to themselves as if they were dressing in a too fancy of a way. I think we, you know, we can think of some of those groups where you just you see them in the grocery store and you know right away because the, the, the overly simple way they dress attracts just as much attention as if they were going through extra foods in a ball gown. It's just, it's, it's not modest actually. It's, it's just as immodest just for the opposite reasons because everyone's still staring at them. And so it would make sense that there would be a balance a balance between not overdoing it and not underdoing it, not being too one way or too the other way. But that's actually not what Peter talks about. So that might be a, a really good thing to, for, for women to think about and talk about, but that's not what Peter talks about. What he focuses on is the heart. Here's, here's what he's saying here. Women, do you want to be beautiful? Start here. Here's where you need to start. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Do you want to be beautiful? Here's how. Focus on internal virtue, the hidden person of the heart, who you are inside. Do you remember what the Lord said to Samuel when Samuel wanted to anoint one of David's brothers? 1 Samuel 16, 7, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Isn't it so easy for us to assess and judge someone based on what we see with our eyes? haven't, Haven't we known how often we're wrong when we do that? Someone looks good on the outside, we assume their heart's good and, and we're totally wrong. And Someone doesn't meet our expectations of how they should look and yet we recognize that their heart is just shining with, with virtue. This internal, external thing, that we see it other places in the Bible, 2 Corinthians 4.16, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, Our inner self is being renewed day by day. Or think about these verses, this verse, almost at the end of Proverbs. Charm is deceitful. Physical charm, it'll lie to you. Beauty is vain. Physical beauty can just vaporize away. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And that's what Peter's pointing to here imperishable inner beauty. Now let's just state the obvious here. By talking about imperishable beauty, Peter is acknowledging the fact that physical beauty is perishable. Our bodies change as we get older. Nobody looks at 80 or 90 the way they looked at 18 or 19. That's just a fact and we need to state it because our world does its best to ignore that fact by Spending billions of dollars on plastic surgery so that people can pretend they're not getting any older because we're afraid of death. Hebrews 2 talks about the fear of death, and that's one of the places we see it in our culture is people pretending they're not actually getting older. And Peter's solution is to say, no, 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 no. 
Your body is going to change. Focus on the beauty that doesn't fade, the beauty that gets better as time goes on, the inner person of the heart. And specifically, what Peter draws attention to here is the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. This is how Peter sums up true inner feminine beauty, a spirit, it's your inner self, that can be described as gentle and quiet. I wrestled over this part of the sermon more than anything else. Because we have to talk about this and we have to say, what does this mean? But, but I want you to know how much I struggle here because I feel like just even to talk about these words, I've, it's like picking up a, a, a beautiful treasure and I just feel just by even picking it up, I'm going to smudge it with my fingerprints and, and mess it up and I, I don't want to do that. This is, this is so precious. So I want to be careful, but we can't just ignore it. Let's start by recognizing a few things here. What is a gentle and quiet spirit? Well, let's recognize what it, what it isn't. Gentle and quiet does not mean being passive or limp or having a shy personality or being permanently silent. So here's how we know that. This word here for gentle is the same word that Jesus used about himself in Matthew eleven twenty nine. He said, I'm gentle and lowly of heart. And, and Jesus was no doormat. He was gentle, so, which again shows us this is not exclusively a feminine trait. It may be more primarily a feminine trait in, in the way that Peter's describing it here, but it's not ex- exclusively. Quiet, this word for quiet, is used in Scripture sometimes to speak about silence, but, but often to talk about peace and rest. So it's the word used in 1 Timothy 2.2 when it talks about us leading a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. The ideal there isn't that Christians would, you know, walk around with tape over their mouths. How are you doing today? Like, no. He's talking about a life that's not marked by agitation and, and uh, uprisings and all this kind of stuff, but a life that is, that is quiet in its overall pattern. And we know that quiet here does not mean stay silent all the time because the Bible is full of women's voices. So this doesn't mean don't talk. So what does it mean? Well, one of the safest ways I know how to describe what these words mean is by looking at good examples of feminine beauty in Scripture. So I think of Abigail in 1 Samuel 25 who comes to stop David, who's on his way to go slaughter her husband and all of his men. And she speaks up, but she does it in such a thoughtful, such a careful, such a respectful way. Think of Priscilla, who is always, by the way, named first in relation to her husband, Aquila. She heard Apollos making some big mistakes as he taught in the synagogue. And instead of making a scene and confronting him publicly, she went with her husband to take him aside and explain to him the way of God more accurately, Acts 18.26. These are just, just two examples that came to mind last night of the many women in Scripture who are not doormats. They are a vital part of God's work 
and their voices and their actions matter. But they do so in a way that is distinctly feminine. They do so in a way that highlights feminine beauty. Is not, it is not marked by aggressiveness or loudness. There is a disposition and an inclination towards meekness and peace. A disposition and inclination to support and affirm leadership in others. And that's my best attempt at this point of defining this. We're going to come back and talk about this next week a little bit more. But perhaps the best way of defining this is just to use Peter's words, a gentle and a quiet spirit. Even as we try to define this carefully, even as we try to recognize this does not mean everyone needs to be pushed into a certain personality box and and so on. I know that there are some people who still would really push back about this. I mean, we live in a day where women like Ashley Judd are celebrated for going on a platform and bragging, quote, yeah, I'm a nasty woman, a loud, vulgar, proud woman, and people applaud. And there's all kinds of ways that we could talk about that and how to address that, but let's just notice how Peter drops the mic at the end of verse 4. A gentle and a quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Regardless of what anybody else thinks, God thinks that a gentle and a quiet spirit is so valuable. That's the sense of this word precious here. This word is used two other times in the New Testament. One of those times is for the perfume that the woman broke and poured on on Jesus' feet. It's valuable. Part of, in that case, what makes it valuable is that it's, it's rare. I'm not sure if that's exactly what Peter's pointing to here. But this is something that God highly values. Ladies, I hope that God's opinion matters the most to you. A gentle and a quiet spirit, young ladies, a gentle and a quiet spirit may not turn heads the way that provocative dress might, but it gets God's attention. It's precious in his eyes. And Peter assumes that God's opinion matters the most as he encourages women not to focus on turning the heads of people, but to focus on cultivating true inner beauty that is precious in God's eyes. Real beauty that gets better as the decades go by. One of the things we got to talk about next week is, man, we, we got to learn as Christians to better value and treasure and celebrate this kind of beauty. How do we do that? How do we train our, our little girls? How do we train our little boys to cherish beauty the way God does? Some of that's coming next week. Here's what Peter does next. In verses 5 to 6, he does what we just did a little bit of, is he gives examples of this beauty. He wants the women who are reading his letter to not have their eyes focused on the wealthy influencers from Rome trying to copy them. He wants to give them a different set of role models. So he says in verse 5, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. 
by submitting to their own husbands. So we've already talked about Abigail and Priscilla. Those are two examples. And we could go through Scripture, ransack the Bible, and look at examples of holy women who hoped in God and how they adorned themselves with this gentle and quiet spirit. Peter specifically points to the way in which they submitted to their husbands, their own husbands. And like we saw already, he's come full circle. He's back to talking about this issue of submission. A, a woman with a gentle and a quiet spirit submits to her husband. Submission is the fruit that grows from the root of a gentle and quiet spirit. And one example of a woman who does this, he mentions, is Sarah, who, in verse 6, obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Well, we got to talk about that. And let's remember that we walked through the life of Abraham and Sarah last spring. So hopefully some of this is still fresh on our minds. And what we see there is that Sarah lived her life with a general pattern of submission to her husband. Peter even says, obey. Did you know that older marriage vows included a promise from the wife to obey her husband? Is it any surprise in our highly feminized world that even Christians would start taking that out? The idea of a wife obeying her husband is, should not be a shock to us because that's a Bible idea. Sarah obeyed Abraham and she went so far as to call him Lord. You know, she's not talking about him being God. Lord was a title of respect and authority. It's pretty interesting because one of the things we talked about, we, we meet on Mondays with a bunch of guys who are developing as preachers and we talk about this. And one of the questions one of the guys asked is, where does Sarah actually call Abraham Lord? It's, 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 it's a fascinating question. It led me to do a bit of looking here. And, and where it comes is, is in Genesis 18. Sarah's at the door of the tent. Three visitors have showed up and she's listening in as they tell Abraham, in a year, your wife is going to have a baby. Now remember, Sarah's in her 90s or, or just at the, at, right at that, that point. Genesis eighteen twelve. So Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? That's the one time that Sarah calls Abraham Lord. Isn't that kind of funny? And so some Bible scholars say, oh, Peter is just ripping that verse out of context. She's not even talking to Abraham when she says that. She's talking to herself. Come on, Peter. Don't you know how to read the Bible? No, no, that's not what's happening. Here's what's happening. Genesis 18, 12 finds Sarah by herself at the door to her tent, talking to herself, making an off-the-cuff statement, laughing at the thought that her almost 100-year-old husband and, and her being the age that she is, could have a baby. And in that off-the-cuff moment, how does she refer to Abraham? She says, my Lord. Which, okay, that's how women would have talked about their husbands back then. So I do not think that this verse is, is, a, is a mandate of what kind of language you wives need to use for your husbands. Okay, Sarah would have talked about her husband like this when she was speaking respectfully to him. But here's Peter's point, or here's part of the point of, of this being cited. Thomas Schreiner says it this way. Even in casual situations, Sarah respected Abraham's leadership, revealing thereby that her honor of him was part of the warp and woof of her life. Okay, warp and woof are words that just mean it's, it was just 
ingrained in her. This wasn't something she's like, oh yeah, I got to do that. It was just built into how she thought was respecting her husband. Honoring, respecting, even obeying something, obeying her husband wasn't something she did once in a while. This was her default mode. And Peter points to this as an example to follow as the women in his day sought to cultivate true inner beauty. And then he says, as verse 6 concludes, and you are her children, Sarah's courageous daughters. You're her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Peter gets it. Peter understands that submission is scary. When you submit to someone else, you take a risk. How do you know that they're going to make the best decision? How do you know it's going to work out for you? How do you know that you can trust yourself to them? Big questions. Young women who are not married yet, those are some of the biggest questions you need to ask. So you think about a guy, it's not, you know, do we have fun together? Does he make me laugh? But can I trust myself to him? Is this someone to whom I can submit safely? But for women who are married, this is a, this is a challenge. Peter gets it. Peter understands submission takes courage. And so he says, you're Sarah's daughters. You're like, you're, 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 you're part of her crew. If you do good and you face the uncertainty of submission with faith-fueled bravery. This, this phrase here about not fearing anything that's frightening comes from Proverbs 3, 25 to 26. Do not be afraid of sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Peter wants them to think about that promise. You can submit to your husbands even if they don't know the Lord because the Lord knows you. He's your confidence. He's watching out for you. He's protecting you. Now again, 5,000 questions, right? What about an abusive husband? What about, and we're going to talk about some of that next week. But don't miss Peter's big idea. He understands submission is scary and he encourages wives not to a passive turn off the brain, just do whatever he says, but to a courageous, gutsy, intelligent, thoughtful, I'm trusting in the Lord decision to do what's right because you know God sees you and he loves you. Now, one verse for husbands. And we're going to move through this relatively quickly, not because this stuff's less important, but because we're going to spend a bit more time next week soaking in it. But we need to just touch on some of these key statements to husbands that Peter makes in verse 7. Likewise, just like wives have God-given responsibilities to their husbands, so husbands have God-given responsibilities to their wives. And there's two main things he highlights here. One, live with understanding. Live with your wives in an understanding way. Live with understanding, you could say that's according to knowledge. That would be another way of translating this. In other words, husbands think. Can't believe no one said amen. Think, brothers, about your wife, about who she is, 
and what it's like for her to submit to you, what it's like for her to live with you, what it's like for her to be a woman in your household, in today's world, what it's like for you to do your job. Live with her with understanding. Use your brain. Men, husbands, be considerate, be thoughtful, think, understand. And the second is show honor. Live with your wives with understand, in an understanding way or with knowledge, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Peter just takes for granted the fact that men are stronger than women. This used to be common knowledge, which is why there are separate sports leagues, or at least there used to be. You see, more than likely here, what we're understanding here, what's almost certain is he's talking about physical strength. Yes, there are some exceptions, but in general, men as a whole, God built to be physically stronger than women as a, as a whole. That's just undeniable. And again, you just, it's just there in the world of sports and so on. And, and part of this physical design tips us off to the fact that God had different types of jobs in mind for us. But what this means is that women are more vulnerable as a whole than men at a physical level. Women are far more often injured by domestic violence, for example. One in seven women has been injured by domestic violence compared to one in 25 men. It's a stat I read yesterday. And so Peter calls husbands to use their physical strength not to take advantage of their wife because they can throw their weight around literally, but to honor her. We're going to talk about physical abuse next week and the tragedy that it is. Men, if you use your body to hurt your wife, do you have any idea how angry God is with you? Peter calls the men reading his letter to use their strength to honor their wives. This is the heart of chivalry. Chivalry says, I am stronger than you, and I use my strength to protect you and to honor you. And we're going to talk about this next week. Dads, raise your boys to hold the door for their mom. Now, why, why does Peter say a, a, a husband should do these things? Well, first reason, they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Whatever differences might appear between men and women here in terms of strength or weakness, we inherit eternal life on the same level playing field. We inherit, we inherit eternal life the same. Being bigger or stronger or smaller and weaker gives you no advantage in inheriting eternal life. So husbands, honor your wives because she's going to live forever with you. It's one way of, of summing this up. And second, husbands are to live with their wives in an understanding way, showing honor to them as the weaker vessel so that your prayers may not be hindered. Let's make this very simple. Man, if you treat your wife poorly, God doesn't listen to you. 
That's what it's saying. It's the idea of God not listening to your prayers a challenge. I mean, the Old Testament talks about this a lot. God does not listen to the prayers of hypocritical oppressors. Jesus said, if you don't forgive your brother, I'm not gonna, God won't forgive you. I mean, this is a common biblical idea. Man, you treat, your hus- you treat your wives poorly, God won't listen to your prayers. He's assuming that you care about that. He's assuming that that's a motivation to you. That you will treat your wife with honor, living with her with honor, with understanding that the living God might hear and answer you when you cry out to him. And for those who don't, God hears the cries of the oppressed and a day of reckoning is coming. He is the protector of the weak and he calls us to imitate him as we live with our wives in an understanding way. Folks, there's so much more to say here. Gone over, I've gone over time here than even what I planned on. There's, there's so much more to say. So many implications in this passage for how we do life, how we do life together. We're going to talk about that next week as we basically just pick up where we left off and preach part two. I encourage you to pray for me this week as I work on the second half of the message. I encourage you to help me out. If there's a specific question about this passage, say, well, what about this? Or does that apply in this situation? Send it to me and it might, it might work its way in or if not, I'll, I'll do my best to, to reply. But for now, let's just, let's, just end, let's just end here. Let's go back to where we started. This is God's design. It's good. It's not natural for us to do this. This has not come naturally to any of us. Don't take this passage and make it a to-do list, okay? Do this, do this, do this, work hard, pull up my bootstraps. We need the Lord to create these attitudes in us, to create this heart in us. We need him. And that's how we're going to end here today, by just praying and saying, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, come, renew us, make us who you want us to be. Help us, oh God, to live in this beautiful pattern that you've given for us. And so as we press pause at this point, we ask God to help us live these truths out together. Would you join me as we pray? Heavenly Father, by your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help our hearts to be soft to what your word has said. I'm praying that you would help us even now as we think this week to begin to apply, to put your word into practice, to reject the wisdom of the world, to embrace your real wisdom. And for every boy and girl, for every woman and every man in this room, would you help us to look to the right examples and above all to look to you and to delight in living out the image in which you made us and the the way in which you made us with the help of your Holy Spirit. Would you forgive us for all the times we haven't? Jesus, we look to the cross and we thank you for paying for every time that we haven't done this. Thank you that there's forgiveness for every offender and there's new life. Would you help us to walk in it? Amen.